Hi, this is Joanne Shaw Taylor, and this is the Blues Podcast. Hello, it's Big Boy Bloater here. Welcome to the Blues Podcast. Uh, don't know about you, but I'm having a bit of a strange day, but it's about to get better because <laughs> I'm about to have a chat with the one and only guitar slinger extraordinaire, Joanne Shaw Taylor. Hello, Joanne, how are you doing? I'm good, love. Thank you for that introduction. Um, yeah, I'm doing well. So you're, uh, you're, you're at home at the moment. How's all the COVID treating you and all that sort of thing? Um, yeah, it's a, a bizarre new world. So I'm at home in the States. I got back. We had a mad rush to get back uh, March 15th because we were in the middle of a UK tour when borders started closing and things like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then it's just been... Um, I mean, I've been all right. It's, you know, I'm not on the road and I'm not sure when I'll be getting back to it, but I'm just trying to make the most of the time off, to be honest. I mean, this is the most time I've had off the road since I was 18, I think. Um, so it's been nice to kind of sleep in my own bed and cook and have some resemblance of a normal routine. Is that getting a bit longer in the tooth now, though, is it? You're sort of itching to get back to the gigs? And... Yeah, I'm ready now. Um there was kind of a, there was like a six week period where I did nothing. I didn't even go on social media and allowed myself to kind of have a real break from from being Joanne Shaw Taylor. Um, and then I had a really productive kind of run for about six weeks where I wrote a lot. And then I had another productive run where I practiced a lot. And then it's it's kind of getting difficult to continue that momentum. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready to go back on the road. Are you like starting to stack up the albums now where you're writing, just thinking, oh, I've, got, I've got so many albums worth of stuff now. I've been sitting here writing. I've got nothing else to do. Oh. Yeah, that was kind of the plan of going, okay, this is the first time I've got time off. Because usually I have time off usually six weeks for Christmas. So by the time I'm done traveling around the UK, seeing family, get back to the States, you've got sort of two weeks left to write an album and then you're kind of back to it. So it was like, oh great, I'll just write four albums. And then I realized I don't have four albums worth of material in me because I haven't been doing anything. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I got, I got a bulk of about 10 tracks ready to go, I think. Cool. Um, so listen, I want to uh, go right back to the start for you, if, if we possibly can, and talk, talk a little bit about guitars to start with. <laughs> I mean, what was it that got you into guitar playing in the first place? So you are in the black country, right, and listening to all these old blues guys. What made you think, yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to do some of that? Well, to be honest, at first it was I was just obsessed with guitar. My dad played, and my older brother was taking lessons. Um, so I started playing classical at school and did quite well with it, and got in the Birmingham Youth Ensemble when I was about ten or eleven. Um, and then by age twelve, I realised I loved playing guitar, but. I couldn't really read music. I was kind of just copying what the person next to me did. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I had no classical heroes. Um, you know, I was 12. I was probably listening to the Spice Girls and NSYNC. So, uh, you know, it wasn't really the era for, for guitar music on the radio. And then made the switch to electric, which my parents were very supportive of, even though they knew I, you know, was doing well with classical. Uh, but my dad just took me through his record collection and just said, you know, find something that inspires you. Wow. And he played me a Steve Ray Vaughan DVD. And that was the one for me, as I think a lot of kind of kids of my generation kind of opened the door um, into his influences and that whole genre, really. What was it about him in particular I think that, that caught your uh, imagination? Um, well, I think for a start, it was coming from that classical world, which was very, very disciplined. It was quite an exposure to someone who, although technically a great guitar player, um, it really opened the door that blues guitar, predominantly, you can just kind of put your own stamp on. There's not really any rules. Um, Breaking as long as the you rules, put... that was exciting. Yeah. And then from him, I went to Albert Collins, which particularly is, I mean, what's that technique? I mean, how do you even come up with that? It's like, so it was kind of that freedom. 
And then I think particularly Stevie was just such a great gateway artist for, you know, I mean, I was 13 and I'd heard Charlie Patton through my dad and Big Bill Brunzi and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. But, yeah. you know, those are kind of hard albums to listen to when you're a 12 year old girl and, you know, they're very scratchy. And they I've don't been have that instant excitement, do they? It's, it's... Yeah, it's a harder listen. So it took me, you know, the route of going through Stevie and Buddy Guy and Albert King and, and you know, then further back. So I think Stevie was great for that as well because. I mean, they were kind of short three-minute songs, you know, Love Struck Baby, Pride and Joy. They're, they're great pop songs, you know, and he's got a lovely palatable voice. Um, and the guitar playing is, you know, obviously extremely catchy and, and uh, you know, very inspiring. So I think that was kind of, he was a good gateway blues artist for a lot of kids, I suppose. Yeah. That's interesting you're saying about that, uh, you know, the, the three-minute songs, because obviously blues now these days, a lot of it is, is, is much, much longer than that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean... I guess Steve Ray Vaughan was listening to a lot of the early guys, you know, uh, the original guys, Hal and Wolf and, and all that sort of, um, yeah. you know, rhythm and blues stuff. The good like, stuff. They, they, were, they were restricted by the amount of time they could fit onto a 45. So it was like three or four minutes. And that was yeah, I've never thought about that, actually. Um, yeah, because, I mean, as you say now, I've actually been using the time to kind of put together an acoustic set, which I've never done. Yeah. And I've got something like 30 numbers, but it's only like 45 minutes because <laughs> there's no yeah. guitar solos and everything. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't play slide. Um, so, you know, it is a very much, as you say, three minutes now is, is pretty rare. But yeah, they were great, you know, particularly for radio play. You know, that kind of went out the window with blues for a while in that kind of theory of being the chorus within the first 40 seconds and, you yeah. know, or even better start with the chorus. Um, but yeah, Stevie was, you know, pretty bang on with that. Absolutely. So you start off on, on uh, classical guitar. Mm. Same as me. I, my mum and dad got me one of those and I thought, this, this is not a guitar. This is not what I want to do. This yeah. is not, you know, screeching loud thing. It's Never like... even got one blister playing that thing. <laughs> no. Do you remember getting your first electric guitar? I do. I went to, um, it was in a brief period where I know I wanted to play electric, but didn't know what. My brother was very into um, rock, you know, a lot of Saturani and Vi and, and that kind of stuff that I don't play. Um, yeah. So we went to a Birmingham guitar show and I'd seen, he was listening to Guns N' Roses and I'd, I'd seen Slash. So I thought, oh, I'll get a Les Paul. And then it was really on the way there that he, my dad played a Steve Ray Vaughan album. So then I started looking at a strap and we found a, um, I think it was a secondhand Mexican Sunburst strap that I changed the pickups in. To, I can't remember what now, it's years ago. But, but yeah, that was the first. Okay, I have the tool now to, right, yeah. <laughs> to do so this. That, that's interesting as well. You're saying you changed the pickups. I mean, were you kind of like instantly wanting to know how the whole thing worked and how it went together, or, or were you kind of a bit hands off on that sort of thing? Yeah, I'm still not very good. I think this is the first time since I've been in lockdown that I've changed my own strings for about a decade. That's which... such a boring <laughs> chore though, isn't it? It's like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I won't lie. It's, it's nice to have someone who does that for you. Um, but uh, I made a few Skype calls to make sure I was doing it right because it had been a minute. I have a terrible focus. Um, so I'm not very good at, at retaining information like that. I'm much better if I can feel something. Right, yeah. Um, but no, the, I was very... I wanted to know everything about Stevie and I wanted to sound like that. So there was a yeah. big experimentation of what's the heaviest strings I can put on this thing and not break my fingers, you know, which are like, I mean, that's useless. It's like a toothpick, you know, and tuning down a flat, which I still do. And, and, you know, getting Texas special pickups, anything with the word Texas in the title, I was a big fan of. <laughs> so, um, 
you got the guitar. And do, do you remember what the first song was you tried playing on it? I mean, was it a Steve Ray Vaughan number? It was. Rather ambitiously, it was Rude Mood, which right. I don't know if you know that song. It's yeah. an instrumental on, which I still can't play. It's, I don't know what I was thinking. It took me about six weeks to to get into the sort of first uh, four bars, really. Um, but it did help me master that kind of the raking, the muting over the top of the fret. Right, yeah, yeah. Which is, I was very keen on mastering that. Uh, and particularly, I'd, I'd just discovered Kenny Wayne Shepherd as well, who was obviously in that kind of school. Um, but yeah, I think it took me most of the summer holidays just to get sort of 12 bars in. That sounds but, like a good summer holiday, though. I mean, you know, most kids. Not for my parents. Wasted <laughs> was doing homework or something. I don't know. But, you know, that's. Uh... Yeah, I wasn't over the park experimenting in, in narcotics. Um, I was locked in my bedroom trying to be that a tech. came later, right? <laughs> yeah, that was the next summer holidays. <laughs> so uh, moving on swiftly then from that one um let's talk a little bit about um uh, dave stewart mm. the man who apparently so uh, discovered you I, I always find it a kind of a weird word discovered like I think everybody does always there, but, you know, yeah was i just hiding in a cupboard waiting yeah. to be found <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, how, yeah, how did you guys meet um it was one of those random things really that um kind of a testament to just getting out there and doing it and eventually people will find you my mom it had breast cancer and um, we were approached by one of the wives from UB40 um, about doing a charity event in Solihull, which I did. And I'd just done a little demo and there was a gentleman there that I don't want to be derogatory about, but having just left school, I'd never encountered a character such as him. Uh, he called himself Dodger and he was dressed like Hendrix from um, Monterey. Right, yeah. Uh, and then I found out after he was actually called, his real name is Roger Pumphrey and is very well-known, very well-respected music documentary maker. Um, but knew Dave, passed on the, the demo. And then um, a couple of weeks later, we got a phone call off Dave, inviting me down to London to meet him, uh, which my dad was very excited about. I had no idea who he was. Um, I'd never, you know, I was 15, I'd never heard of the Eurythmics. And went down and he was very much a, I just watched um, being John Malkovich, um, who's one of my favourite actors, not that he's been that too much, but... Um, I don't know if you remember, he's in being John Malkovich, the office is like on the 11th yeah. and a half floor. Yeah. And Dave had this, it was, you had to take a lift to the fourth floor and then walk down two flights of stairs, but he wasn't on the third floor. It was like this weird hidden, <laughs> and he was wearing orange flares and a purple jumper, which I remember being quite alarmed about, given the only men I knew at that point were my dad and school teachers. So yeah, and then we got on like a house on fire and uh, yeah, I was discovered. <laughs> right, yeah. And the rest is history, eh? Yeah, right. <laughs> Has it, has it, do you think, is it, has it been easy, uh, kind of a, an easy journey, uh, sort of playing blues and, you know, travelling around the world, or is it? Has I it think being a, a professional musician, you know, as you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough living. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, it's far better than doing something you love to do for a living has got to be better than, you know, sitting in an office every day doing something you hate. But the pay is probably better um, the yeah. retirement plan. But um, I think momentum's your friend. You know, you just keep going. And every long, uh, along the way, you get these little moments that kind of justify what you're doing, whether that's just playing the blues club you always wanted to play or finally touring America or getting to Australia or meeting like-minded musicians. Um, so I think looking back, it feels like a, a huge marathon, but you know, it doesn't feel that way when you're in it. You're just kind of right, propelling yeah. yourself forward. Yeah. Just day to day, you get on with it kind of like, but uh... yeah, you know, um, it has been on my mind of when I get back to touring, am I going to be physically capable of it? <laughs> it's been a while since I've done a 90 minute gig. Right. Yeah. Um, and just that getting up every day and doing it over and over. And, uh, but yeah, I do miss it. So 
going to go into training before uh, before the gig starts. I've been, yeah, that's been on my mind because we're about to hit massive winter here. Um, nothing says fun like a polar vortex. Uh, and obviously I'm not too keen on being in the gym right now around, you know, germs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think I'll be doing some, I'll have to get like a Mr. Muscle DVD or Jane Fonda or something and start getting back into it. You can make your own. Yeah, oh God. The thing, you know, you, you could do a, a YouTube channel, you know. Get, yeah, back there's one good thing to come out of quarantine. It's Joanne Shaw Taylor and Lycra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that one on the back burner. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about Detroit. I mean, how did, how did you end up moving uh, there from, from, from like, uh, what, Willen, was it Willenhall? Um, no. Uh, we were in Solihull at the time. I was living yeah. with my parents. Um, they're in Hockley Heath. Um, it's just a happy accident, really. I'd done a gig at a place called Riffs Bar in Warwickshire, Worcestershire. And the sport band was American. They were from Detroit. And I'd always wanted to tour there. And I was on a label called Roof Records at the time that didn't really fund artists going to America. So I just said, look, if I book the gigs myself and try and get, you know, a work visa, uh, you're right with that. And they said, yes. And I contacted the, the band that had opened up for me from Detroit. And they said, great, we can get you back line. We can be your band. I just started coming over and I got an agent and it was dirt cheap to live in Detroit at the time because it was a third world country, um, which was just about my budget. Uh, so it's just one of those things I made friends. I ended up staying, you know, and at that time as well, I was like 21. So most of my friends from school were going through university and doing their own thing. So it wasn't like I had much going on in the UK. Yeah. Is that something you feel like you missed out on not going to university? I thought about it recently. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I left school at 15, 16 and I hadn't had the best attendance record up until then. I was mostly in my bedroom playing guitar. So, yeah, it's kind of, you know, I try and read as much as possible. And I had thought about it whilst in lockdown. Maybe I should do an online course or something, which I ended up doing a creative writing course, which, you know, won't be very useful for my academic career. But no, I don't think so. I think I've had a very wonderful life. I've met some very, very interesting characters and you know, I don't have anything to complain about. Not yet. Coronavirus. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about. Um, I, I was reading through the uh, the blog and all that sort of thing earlier as well, and um, talking about writers writers block. Obviously, which uh, is something you obviously haven't got now, but you've been through that before, right? I mean, how how did you get through that? Um, it's you know, it's a weird thing with writing that you just can't control it. Um, or certainly, I haven't figured out a way of doing it. I do tend to write better when. Uh, I'm under great pressure to, to provide material. I think never underestimate the power of panicking, you know, if you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember doing Dirty Truth, which is my fourth album. And I was in Australia on tour and we had, I was playing Australia and then I was going home for like three days and then I had to be in Memphis to record. And I remember Jim Gaines going, can I have the songs? And I said, oh, my laptop's crashed and I don't have them. I'm going to have to go back home and re-record them which basically translated as, I haven't written an album yet, I'm going to panic and do it in three days. <laughs> um, and I still had to finish a lot of the lyrics off while we were recording. So I'm, I tend to work well in that environment. But I think you've just, so far, there's never been a, a situation where I've had to come up with an album and I haven't been able to. Right. Um, and now in the last few years, I've taken, you know, I've done six albums of original material, so the pressure's off a bit. I feel I can co-write more and, you know, it doesn't detract away from the fact that I can write if I want to. Um, and I've got a wonderful team of co-writers down in Nashville, James House, etc. Um, so yeah, I think it's just one of those things you've just got to let it be, really, and not, you know, yeah. overthink it. 
you've kind of worked all over the place, songwriting and recording all that, you know, all around America, Nashville, like you just mentioned. Where's your favourite place now to work? I mean, it was really nice to do the last album in Detroit. That was kind of a treat to be able to go to the studio and then see a friend for dinner afterwards and come home. Because I think, you know, at this point in the game, it's all about making life easy for yourself, you know, and cutting down on the amount of travel when you're not on tour. Um, There is something about recording in the South, all those albums I did with Jim, where there's just a vibe down there of, of it's so relaxed. You know, you can, it does have a, a soul to it that nowhere else that I've been does. So that always, I think, impacts it a little bit. Nashville was fun. I didn't really feel a great sense of blues vibe on me in Nashville, uh, shockingly. Um, but it was a cool town to be in and there's always, you know, musicians about and, and stuff. So, you know. That different vibe in Nashville, do you think that affected what you were doing? I think so. I think it was certainly, um, so we were in the old RCA building, which I think we were the last, I was the last artist to be in there that wasn't, because uh, Dave Cobb bought it, producer, it wasn't one of Dave's. Um, you know, it's where Dolly Parton recorded Jolene and, you know, so it had such a kind of yeah. uh, presence being in there. Um, so, yeah, I think each has, has added a bit of personality to the album in its own different way where we've recorded. And uh, I'm also just asking the technical stuff because I'm interested in the technical <laughs> stuff. But um, I was noticing um, the latest album you've been working on, it, it, it's, uh, you've gone back to like no pedals, no effects, nothing, just like straight in the amp. Feel kind of old school. Yeah, and I think that comes down to what I said earlier in that I'm not that good at technology. Um, okay. I just don't want other stuff to be worrying about. Um, you know, and I just think it works. I mean, I always end up sounding the same way anyway, no matter what amp I use, you know, um, for better or worse. Uh, so yeah, for me, just a tube scream, if you need a little bit and very low gain on it, high volume, just a little bit of an extra boost, but I just don't think you can go wrong with a good guitar. You're comfortable with into a nice tweed amp, you know, um, I sound pretty much the same whether I'm doing that or through a Marshall anyway. So it's... (laughs) I mean, it's classic, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, people have been doing it for, what, 78 years now, I guess. And it's, uh, you know, they're still yeah, doing it. something right about it. Yeah, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, yeah, I mean, big fan of reverb. Can't get enough reverb, whether that's on guitar or vocal. Uh, right. But other than that, I'm pretty... Yeah, I just... Um, I think working with Dave as well, when I toured with him, he, he turned up at an airport once with what looked like a giant keyboard, and then I slowly realised it was his pedal board. You always be lugging that around. It's like, you know, yeah. five flange pedals and, you know. And you, you spend more time with the pedal board thinking, what have I got to hit next? Than, than, you know, than you know, that's definitely an element of it for me in that it's just one more thing to worry about on stage. It's me, microphone. I put my pedal board to the left so I can kind of see it out the corner of my yeah. eye. Um, and all I got to do is hit the boost and then I'm off and running for the solo. Uh, but yeah, trying to, it's kind of like trying to do a little bit of a dance while you're trying to remember which part of the verse you're coming back in. And have you ever had that thing where you've, you're at the gig and you've done your sound check, everything's great, and you go off, support band comes on, moves something, and the pedal board is just slightly in the wrong place. And you find yourself pretty much falling over when you're trying to hit it, like, you know, and you think, oh, God. My um, previous guitar tech was like six foot five. And I'm like, you do realise I'm your height in reverse. I'm five foot six, you know. Predominantly legs, but I still can't reach that, you know. Try and think of us wee folk. Right. Um, you were doing some ridiculous stretch and or some kind of dance over to the left to hit a pedal. People think it's uh, part of the show, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Which is also another reason not to have a support band, because it is just that thing of, you know, having to go sound check and get the stage where you want it, and then you've got to take it all off and yeah. 
Hey ho. If you if you could have any support band or support artists, who would it be? I always like having an acoustic opener. Um, for that reason Um, and also it's just there were so many times when I was with a previous promoter that we would always find a guitar player to open up and I just thought it's just how much guitar can you sit through you know between the 45 minute opener and then me doing 90 minutes I always thought it was nicer to have a bit more of a contrast an acoustic or a slide or something so I kind of always go for diversity and I try and promote female artists as much as I can so we've been having Sonia Lee out recently right yeah she's a fantastic songwriter from Nashville um so yeah that's kind of my my go-to's right yeah uh, speaking of supporting female artists and like, I mean how how do you, how are you finding it as a female artist in in the music world these days I mean music world's a bit fucked up but <laughs> yeah <laughs> what was the music world yeah um I mean I've always I had a lot of support. There's still some things that irk me. I always get asked, what's it like to be a female guitar player? It's like, sorry, <laughs> pretty much the same as a male, I would think. I mean, I don't have anything to compare it to, but um, my being female has yet to, to come in to affect my tone. Um, or I get, uh, I get, you're my favorite female guitar player a lot, which I kind of think, well, there's only three of us. So <laughs> it's, it's not really, just tell me I'm not your favorite guitar player. It's fine. I'm a big girl. Um, <laughs> well, it could be worse. They could have said, oh, you're in my top three. Like, you know, and you know instantly that means you're third best. It's like, you know, oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I did have a weird comment the other day. I put up a post in tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away on Friday. So obviously without, I don't know if you know much about her. I mean, I wouldn't be able to get a credit card without my husband signing off on it, let alone have the career I have. Um, one guy put up, well, I can't listen to you anymore because of this post. I'm like, there wouldn't be a page for you to like if it wasn't for her. Yeah. Um, and he said, I'm going to listen to, I think it was Anna Popovich instead. I was like, well, you don't have to pick another female. It's not like you're trading out one set of ovaries for another. You can go listen to Eric Gales or... Um, so there's still a little bit of, of misogyny, I suppose, that creeps in. But by and large, I've, you know, I think I've had a good career and... and been respected i think that's good yeah yeah my my wife used to be in a band with me and the amount of times we would turn up at a, a venue and we'd be unloading our van like you know and the promoter would come up to my wife and say why don't you go stick the kettle on in love let the boys do all the work like, you know so. i think female drummers still get it the worst i've had two and then they will get asked when's the drummer coming oh. like she's here yeah yeah. Well, uh, if, you're the if you're not with the band, can you wait outside, please? Yeah, I am with the band. No, no. If you're not in the band, yes, I'm in the band. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think the other thing is, I mean, there's still a lot of if you're a female and you speak up for yourself, you're a diva, as opposed to if a guy was to do it. I always think if I ever did the Keith Richards thing of if someone came on stage and I hit them, would I be a rock star like Keith, or would I just be an angry woman? <laughs> <It's>, um, <laughs> I but, mean, that, uh, uh, that that time. Uh, I presume it's the, the same incident <clears throat> you're talking about where he just kind of like takes that guitar and bangs that guy. Yeah. Puts the guitar back on and carries on playing. That is one of the most brilliant bits of guitar play. And it's seamless. It's almost like the Steve Ray Vaughan um, string change. Have you seen that? When he string yeah. breaks and he just kind of holds the next one. It's like seamless. Same with Keith. It was just off, boom, back on. Brown sugar. <laughs> didn't didn't <laughs> hit the bar. Yeah, yeah. it's great. I've been working on that. I'm just waiting for someone to come on stage. Waiting for the right person to, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Upset. You have any stage invasions? Or I mean, blues crowds are fairly, uh, fairly respectful and polite, aren't they? They are. I've had two situations, um, which neither I kind of realised. I was playing a big gig in Jacksonville, Florida. It was a big outdoor stage festival. 
and my bass player, I was looking to the left and my bass player was kind of like motioning, like, look the other way. And I turned around, there's a woman right here just talking to me. And it's kind of like, I'm kind of busy right now. Yeah. I, can't really, I can't hear you. I'm in front of a drummer. And then I looked over and the security guard's like, do you want me to do something about this? I'm like, that would be great. Um, but fortunately, I think she was just drunk and, and, and happy. There was no chance of me being knifed or Martina Sellis kind of goes through your head. But um, And then the other one was recently, I think it was the last tour in the UK. And I didn't realise it. I just saw my guitar tech, who's again, was massive, big Rob, 6'5", just kind of pick up like a doll and sling it off stage and didn't realize a man had somehow got backstage was running on stage and went to grab me and literally Rob just went whoop and kind of had his momentum work against him <laughs> uh but other than that I've been touchwood pretty pretty safe pretty safe excellent um let's t let's talk about more about guitars because I do like guitars you know and I think a lot of people do who doesn't they're, they're an amazing uh amazing instrument right? i mean they don't make any sense whatsoever really when you break them down i mean you look at a piano and you can see all the keys laid out in front of you can't you and it's like well that makes sense it starts low and goes high guitars are just all over the place aren't they you know that, but, it's uh, a weird instrument to, someone described it to me a piano player once who also played guitar said piano is really easy at first and then it gets harder because you can right. see what you're doing all oh, right i have to hold down a c yeah uh whereas guitar is difficult at first but then once you kind of open the door it kind of gets easier i'm still waiting for it to get easier but um no it is a fascinating instrument and i've really gotten back into practicing while i've been off actually it's been really nice to just put on a you know jeff beck dvd and try i mean that's a difficult one I'm still that's, he just play, he's technically so just out there it, he knows every single little technique that you could possibly ever imagine yeah i was thinking about this the other day and it's no disrespect to stevie but there's a lot of guys out there that can pull off certain elements of stevie's playing and you hear it i've never heard anyone sound like jeff beck well, yeah they just can't emulate him um not really you know I, I can't think of a guitar player that's come through you know obvious jeff beck influence um but no, monstrous. i did a show with him a couple of years back at the uh the roundhouse in camden mm, and, uh, i love the venue yeah that's a great venue isn't it uh, he was he was there quite early, you know, all through my sound check and all that. And I tell you, from the moment he arrived to the moment he went on stage, he was in his dressing room practicing, just noodling yeah. away all the time. Didn't come out, didn't stop. It must have been about four or five hours, just practice, practice, practice. Yeah, no, he's incredible. We did a show with him a couple of years ago in um, this beautiful gig. It was at Amphitheatre in Lor uh, Orange in France, I think. Um, Vinnie Carludo on the drums and Rhonda Smith one of my yeah. female heroes on bass, used to play Prince. Um, and same thing, kind of rocked up, played a bit of guitar, got on stage, blew everything away, went home, did it again tomorrow, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, just magical. And he did a, one of my favourites, uh, his version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Oh, right, yeah. And in that setting, you know, sitting outdoors in the yeah, south yeah. of France in an amphitheatre, it was just... Uh, what more could you want, eh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's one of those moments that makes all the, the sacrifice and the road worthwhile, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, guitars these days, what are you What are you playing and what are you, what are you looking at thinking, oh, that could be buying an ex-guitar? Yeah, I don't really have that many guitars. Um, I think I don't like guitars not being played. So at the moment, it's pretty much my main guitar, which I've had since I was 15, Junior, which is a 1966 Esquire. Um, but I got him cheap on Denmark Street when I was about 15 because the previous owner had attacked it with a knife as you do um i think he was trying to put in a humbucker 
with like a butter knife. I don't know what the, what was going through his mind or her mind. Um, and then my Les Paul, which is just a standard 2008 Les Paul. Um, I have an Albert Collins signature model, which I do play a lot as well. Um, you know, when I want to be alone and pretending to be Albert Collins uh, on a Tuesday night. But um, so, yeah, I keep things pretty simple. And then I've just been working with Taylor recently on the acoustic side of things, which I'm loving. Um, I've always struggled to find acoustics for me just because big bodies aren't really um, great for me being, you know, five, right, six. Yeah. yeah. Lighter. Um, and the necks are a lot slimmer. So I've been really getting along with those. But, yeah, I keep it pretty simple. I think the only guitar I really want is I would love a nice um, 335 but a, or maybe a Gretsch, but, again, big-bodied guitars. Yeah. Some of those Gretsches are quite thin, though, aren't they? So it's... Yeah. Um, and then the Dream guitar has always been a 72 thin line. Um, but kind of holding out on that one. I'll find it one day. <laughs> I heard a, a rumour from somebody that you once had a really uh, quite interesting guitar shopping experience with Joe Bonamassa. <laughs> I've got to stop telling this story. He's going to stop being my friend. Um, yeah, I was in New York for, it was, they was just starting Backcountry Communion. Uh, and I'm friends with Joe um, and his guitar tech at the time was my partner. So I went out to New York and um, they were rehearsing. So I went shopping uh, and it was the early days. I didn't have much money, um, but found Albert Collins signature model signed by Albert in a guitar shop. It's about five grand dollars, which I didn't have. Yeah. Went back, told Joe. He's like, well, what have you got? And I was like, well, could probably get like three grand together. He goes, all right, well, I'll go back with you. And I'm Joe Bonamassa, so they're going to want me to have it and have a photo with it. And So we go back, and um, sure enough, they make a big fuss of him. And he's like, what can I get this for? And they go, how much for you to walk out the door with it and we get a photo of you? He's like, three grand. And they go, great, buy it. And then he kept it for himself. <laughs> and, um, it's like, What? Um, and then I mentioned it to his dad. We were on the cruises, Lenny, who's a big New York guy. He's like, that's right. You've been such a good friend to him, Joseph. Um, and just guilt tripped him. And then eventually I got a phone call going, what's your address? Uh, Albert Collins signature model arrived on my front porch as a gift. Uh, <laughs> so I personally think he comes out of that story looking very good. Actually. He gifted me a guitar. Eventually, I guess. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. I'm bored. You're a bit slow sometimes. <laughs> I think that's just guitar players in general, right? You know, just, yeah. We're in our own little world most of the time, I think. I think so, yeah. And uh, I, want, I want to know about the fuzz face as well, because this is another a good story of yours, isn't it? When you were um, uh, at oh, the I celebration. Um, and yeah, the Diamond Jubilee. Yeah. Yeah, that was, um, so I went out to play. My job basically was to stand there with angel wings on. Uh, and play rhythms who uh, there must be an angel and then I had a big lead um, but it's a weird setup on the day because obviously it's the monarchy they can't the queen can't be seen to be endorsing anything so all amps had to be hidden um, pinnables kind of had to be gaffer taped over and stuff um, and I didn't realise it at the time I played the rhythm with the fuzz face on and then I turned the fuzz face off to go for the solo and I had to walk out there was a choreographed I had to walk towards Annie who was sitting on some steps so it wasn't like I could just go back and hit the pedal. Um, so yeah, I ended up playing an exceptionally clean, underdriven guitar solo and was mortified. And then when I was trying to leave, uh, Stevie, Stevie Wonder's drum tech came to find me to tell me Stevie loved my really clean, bluesy tone. So I was like, 
Oh, great. Well, that worked out well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so is that, did that sway you a little bit for this sort of new found love of just plugging straight into the amp kind of thing? Yeah, maybe, looking back. Um, I think also it was a kind of a push to clean up my technique because I'm quite a sloppy player, particularly with my right hand. You know, if you watch someone like Joe, he's, he actually plays very lightly. Um, and I think growing up, I, particularly being female, a bit of a chip on my shoulder about being aggressive to make up for the fact, you know, I didn't want to be seen to be playing like a girl. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it means my right hand's quite sloppy. So I think cleaning up the tone so that it, you know, highlights more mistakes, so I really have to be careful and think about what I'm doing was also sort of part of it. <laughs> I, I thought it would have been the other way around because having much more gain, you would hear, but I guess maybe it's, yeah. Well, I think my thinking is if I can get it polished, then you can add in the effects. Right. And the playing is already there perfect. You're not hiding anything. You're just amplifying it. Yeah. Um, as opposed to having to use pedals to mask the fact that, you know, you're really not playing very fast or, you know, right, yeah. you know, that's one um, thing I always used to say to a lot of people when they said, Oh, can you give, you know, play, you know, young players a tip or something? And I'm like, well, not really. Cause I'm not a very technical player, but I always, you know, used to say, if you can play something on a guitar without plugging it into the amp, even, and, and just mm. like there, you know, then put all your effects. Cause I think people go for all the effects and make it sound really loud because it sounds great that way. Don't it? And you don't really have to make, many good notes like that yeah and um, to be honest i know it's it sounds really uncool i'm not a big fan of loud music right. um you know I, I don't like loud drummers i don't you know i just don't think there's any need for it and i think that may come from being a vocalist um you know and there's only so loud i can shout and there's only so loud we can make those monitors go um so really that needs to be here and the drums need to be here you know if you're starting here i'm just gonna blow my voice out screaming over that yeah um so I think that's part of it. And then, you know, you look at guys like, you know, Jimmy Vaughan, you know, and it's, again, it's very clean, very tasteful yeah. and it's brilliant. You don't need all the bells and whistles. Yeah. Get the notes right in the first place. You'd, you'd be all Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> Why don't you just do your job? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about singing a little bit. Cause I mean, how did you fall into that? I mean, I think a lot of musicians, performers start off on the guitar and it's kind of like, oh, who can sing then? I'll, well, I suppose I'll, I'll fall into it. Is that how it kind of worked out for you? Yeah, pretty much. I think like a lot of blues artists, it was obvious that it kind of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? You know, growing up listening to Stevie or BB King and Freddie King. Um, unfortunately, they were amazing singers in their own right, um, you know, even without the guitar playing. And it was something that I, I'd never tried to do and I didn't particularly enjoy it, but I did love singers. Um, and I think that started early with, I got quite into Johnny Lang. Right. Um, and that Lie to Me album, because, I mean, he would have only been 15 and I would have been about 13. So it was quite a big deal to have. Because yeah. everyone else was 70 or 80, you know, the guys I was listening kind of weird, to. It? Yeah. kid that looks like me, skinny and blonde. And, he, you know, so I kind of got more in that soul thing, particularly as it was very hard for me to, it was easy to fake sounding like Albert Collins on a guitar. Well, not easy, but um, achievable. Um, it was harder to try and sing like Freddie King, you know, so I had to go listen to the female voices, which fortunately my mom was big into soul music and Motown. So it was a lot of Reef Franklin and some Edda James, Shaka Khan, you know, all that kind of good stuff. So, yeah, I just fell in love with it. It was a bit of a, it took a good 10 years to kind of something click. As I say, I'm not good at being told how to do something. I kind of have to feel my way through it myself and eventually something just sort of managed to make sense of it. Are you, are you happy with your voice these days? Or do you think, oh, you know, could, could do more work? Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's a constant battle just because the amount I tour, it's, you know, looking after it is the main thing. Right. Um, it, and in recent years, I've been very, I get quite anxious on the road, so I don't talk after a gig. 
Um, I don't do the meet and greets after anymore because I mean, there's a big school of thought that the worst thing you can do to your voice after you sang is, is use it again, just do a cool down and, you know, it's kind of like exercise, I guess. Right. Yeah. So do you have to uh, take care of your voice on the road quite a lot then? Kind of. I do. I tend not to do interviews where possible or I'll ask them to email me the questions instead. I did go through a phase of um, trying not to talk, but you just feel like an idiot writing down a message for your tour manager. You know, you kind of feel like a bit of a diva. Yeah, I'd like a cup of tea, please, Les. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I do try and, and keep an eye on it. Um, so that's part of the battle. And I like my voice. You know, I don't think it's too bad. I mean, you know, again, I'm white and from Solihull. <laughs> How good a blues singer was I ever going to be? Um, so I think I, I, I did all right. But, you know, and then I listened to, I was listening to Nothing Compares to You, the live version with Shaka Khan. Was, oh, no, sorry, Rosa Gaines. Um, and I love that big, booming, gospel-y soul voice. You know, I would love that. Uh, so it's a constant work in progress, really, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any, like, a lot of, you know, just talking about, you You know, don't like to talk too much before or after the shows. And stuff. Is there any other routines that you have to go through? Like, lots of people have, like, special teas or kind of that sort of thing? Or, yeah, it's... No drugs? Yeah, I tend not to drink. I quit smoking a few years ago, um, which, you know, don't smoke if you want to sing. <laughs> it's a really stupid thing. And a lot of people go, you know, oh, if you want to sound like Alan Wolf, you've got to smoke eight-year-day kind of thing and all that, you know. Sort of yeah, I mean, I could smoke for eight years and I'm pretty confident I'll never sound like Alan Wolf. Um, I have a gut feeling on that. Um, I think smoking did change the timbre of my voice, and I think I, I did it long enough that it, you know, I got a bit of rasp out of it, but hopefully no, not too much damage. Um, not that I'm recommending that as a, as, as a technique to, yeah. to improve your voice at all. Uh, but yeah, tease, throat coat, don't talk, lots of water, shut up, basically, as much as possible. Is um, hard or easy for you? Very hard. Is it? Particularly afterwards, if I have a glass of wine, I get quite chatty. And I get very untry. Um, so yeah, that's a bit tough. But, you know... There's worse jobs in the world than shutting up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's true. Uh, how did you quit smoking? Nicotine patches. Yeah? Yeah, that's what I went for. Um, so I started when I was about 17, so I had been smoking a long time. Um, how, do you get into, how do you get... I don't understand how kids even start smoking these days. It's like... I don't know how I did either, to be honest, looking back. I was living in London in this ridiculous apartment on the South Bank that had come through Dave Stewart. I was living with a female Jamaican rapper, and I... Um, French artist from Nice called Mehdi. Um, and they'd both gone home for Christmas and I was just sitting there and I was bored and I thought, oh, I'll go get, buy a pack of cigarettes. That's something to do. <laughs> and then started smoking 20 a day. There was no, uh, just plain stupidity, I think. Um, but yeah, hey-ho. Yeah. Big waste of money. Smoke. <laughs> yeah, don't. It's, I mean, I don't know how anyone can afford to nowadays. We're about $15 in London, I think. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a, a rich man's business, that's for sure. Right. There's a, there's a question I always like to ask on these uh, these interviews, and um, I'm curious. You look nervous. It goes it goes like this. It's <laughs> uh, it's quite convoluted. So, so bear with me. Um, I want you to imagine we're, we're slightly in the future now. Uh, we've we've gone through to the future, and there's all sorts of great things happening. But we've just found out that a meteorite is going to hit the Earth tomorrow. I wouldn't be surprised this year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the world president, whoever that is at the time, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like that, he gets on the phone and says, Joanne, listen, you know, obviously the world's going to end tomorrow. 
uh, we want to put on this massive, massive party. We want you to come and play uh, and do a song. Uh, you can have any band you want and play any song you want. What, what are you going to do? Oh, wow. That's a big question. My initial thinking is, do I do one of mine or do I do just a song I love? But then you risk your last performance on earth being not as good as it could, but then no one's going to remember it because we're all going to be dead. Um, ooh. You know what? I'd probably just play now. There's this, I don't, have you ever heard the Steve Ray Vaughan um, Live at Carnegie Hall album? Yeah, yeah. There's a song on it called Iced Over. He does an Albert Collins um, instrumental with the room full of blues horn section. Right. I'd go down that route and just go big. Right. Massive horns. Um, Sing one. I guess so, because it doesn't matter if I blow my voice out, does it? It's going to be <laughs> dead in the morning. I would do a Prince medley <laughs> with uh, Dr. Fink and Michael Bland and uh, Sheila E on percussion and Rhonda Smith. Uh, I wouldn't learn to dance for it, though. There wouldn't be enough time uh, to learn that. And then I'd just probably take loads of drinks and drink loads of red wine and wish you all well. Here we go. <laughs> Wait for the end of the year. Well, yeah. <laughs> Ten, nine. There's worse places to go, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> any, any, uh, again, this is another one that I get all the time and I get asked, and I always try to ask people this question just so I can steal their answers quite often. <laughs> but, um, so what would you recommend to someone who's kind of getting into blues now and wants to be like, a blues musician, uh, you know, for a living? Um, <laughs> do it, but... <laughs> I mean, I think I'd give the advice that I got off Dave. I mean, because I don't really consider myself a blues artist. I think I'm probably a blues guitarist um, and maybe more of a soul singer. And then my songs kind of fall in the category of sort of rock pop, I suppose. Um, occasional shuffle. Um, I mean, the advice Dave gave me was he took me out in his car and he asked me to bring a couple albums I loved. And I think I took Texas Flood and Lie to Me, Johnny Lang. Um, and he had a listen. He went, that's all really good. He said, but um, I just think there's more to you as an artist. He said, what's the everyone's favourite guitar solo? And I said, I think it's um, Eagles, Hotel California. Right, yeah, yeah. He said, yeah. Um, he said, but do you think that's because it's a great guitar solo or because it's in a great song, so therefore everyone's heard it? Um, and was just very pivotal in, okay, I think you've got something more to say that's not just the guitar, it's the voice, and the, I think the song's in you. And then he gave me little homework assignments where he'd give me 10 song titles and I had to pick a couple to try and then he'd grade them back. Um, so I think that would be my thing is just find your voice. You know, you have something unique that nobody else has. You know, and we all steal off people and kind of wrap it up into our own thing. You know, there's a lot of Stevie in my playing and Albert Collins. Um, but I think I definitely sound like Joanne Shaw Taylor, um, you know. So I think that would be my advice. Just try and, you know, find out who you are and what's your contribution to the genre or any genre, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah, I like it. Uh, and f finally, you know, any unfulfilled aspirations so far? What, what is, is, is there anything that you'd like? Really Play with wish? Prince. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen now, no, is it? It's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> um, unfulfilled aspirations? Not really. I think... Um, you know, I've been happy with my career as a whole. I mean, having this chance to kind of reflect and time off and look back. I mean, I've done seven albums in 10 years and I've managed to tour America uh, consistently, which not a lot of UK-based artists get to do. Um, 
I think moving forward, it'd just be more, I think, about collaboration, maybe. I think I'd like to stretch my wings a little bit and yeah. maybe break out I'll into some other... Anyone that you'd really love to work with? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few that, you know, Alabama Shakes, Chris Stapleton. Wouldn't mind doing some stuff with Joe, just because we're such good friends. I think in the early days, it would have been a bit daunting, but now, being that little bit older, I'm more comfortable in my own skin, that would... And he's moving forward into the production game. I think that could be an interesting um, collab. There's a producer called David Z, did a lot of Prince stuff and early Johnny Lang stuff I'd love to work with. Uh, and then write for other artists, you know, because there's a lot of songs I come up with sometimes that I just know I can't put on one of my albums, you know. Yeah. Far too girly. <laughs> um, you know, so it'd be nice to, to work with other women. Um, I think that's a big thing for me moving forward is... Uh, we're working with Gibson to come up with a guitar school that's for girls. Oh, okay. Um, because statistically, girls are less likely to enter into one because they're, you know, it's predominantly boys and they're a bit more yeah. intimidated at that age. Um, so working with Ace from Skunk Nancy and, and Gibson to get that going. So I think that's, you know, something that would be very important to me and be a nice, you know, thing to have done. Um, so yeah, lots of stuff. Fantastic. Joanne, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you today. Oh, thank, uh, thank you, thank you for sparing too. the time for us. It's been real good fun. Uh, yeah, thank you. So if you've enjoyed this, why not like and subscribe to the Blues Podcast right now? All right? <laughs>